0: Well, if you're anything like me, then you're a die-hard Dallas Cowboys fan. That's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. And you know what? I follow them even throughout the entire offseason. And you know, back earlier in the spring, the Cowboys had a series of practices that were optional. The players could choose whether or not they wanted to participate. But they just wrapped up another series of practices that were mandatory. And you know, The good news is the Cowboys had 100% participation this year. But every now and then, there'll be a player or two who convinces himself that he can get the same level of preparation in at his private workout facility. Can you imagine all that a player misses out on by not practicing with his teammates? I mean, sure, he might have a couple trainers there, but there's nothing like actually getting to practice with the guys who you'll be playing with on Sundays, with the guys who you will be down in the trenches with. I mean, think about it. This guy's isolated himself to where he's got nobody to encourage him when he's doing a good job. He's got nobody to rub off on him and challenge him to help him become better. He's isolated himself and made it a private activity. You know, sometimes in Christianity, people get to where they think that faith is a journey that we walk alone, privately. But our section of scripture today in Hebrews chapter 10 has something to say about that. It says that Jesus Christ died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he forgave us by paying for our sins, washing us clean, and acting as our great high priest. And now that that's happened, we've been brought into a new system of living. And you know what? We need to understand something. As we bring this four-part series on what it looks like to live in Christian community to a close, we need to understand that when God saves someone, He does not save them into isolation. Isn't that good news? He saves them into a family. He drafts them onto his team, God's team, God's family, the church. And you know what? Now that we've been brought into this new family, we have new brothers and sisters who we're obligated to and accountable for. And one of the great truths of the gospel is that now that We no longer have any fear of punishment since Christ has paid for our sins in full. We're freed up to actually love other people and look out for the interests of others. So God's telling us in our scripture today to draw near to him in faith, as Pastor Kurt just read, to hold fast to the truths that we believe. And as we hone in on the passage of scripture, we're going to be looking at these two verses, verses 24 and 25 from Hebrews chapter 10, the author gets practical. He's telling us how to live as good siblings, as good teammates. So look there with me, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 24. This is what it says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The emphasis here is on the key phrase stir up, it could also be translated as provoke, incite, motivate or spur on. Well, who exactly is this directed towards? Who exactly are we to stir up? Well, it's one another, clearly. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ right here at First Baptist Georgetown. So if we're to stir up one another, I mean, what does that, what does that mean? I mean, I can think of a lot of situations where stirring something up can result in a disastrous outcome. You know, we actually have a, a term that's used to describe Causing a situation filled with strife and trouble. Stirring up a hornet's nest. You guys have heard that before. Well, fortunately, that's not what this is about. It's not a type of stirring up that brings out the worst in us. It's a type that brings out the best. It's to stir one another up in the most beneficial way possible. So that we can be all that God intends us to be. As individuals and as a church body. You know what it's more like? Open up your refrigerator and pull out a a bottle of vinaigrette dressing. If it's been sitting there for some time, you'll see that it's separated into two parts. And a lot of that stuff will have settled down in the bottom of it. If you read on the side of the bottle, what does it say? Shake well before using. And in the same way, we need to shake one another up. We need to stir one another up. Similarly, Left alone by ourselves, just like that bottle of salad dressing, we tend to naturally sink into selfish thinking. Only looking out for ourselves and maybe at best our immediate families. So the command here is for us to stir one another up, to bring out the best, all that God intends for us to be. It's to pump one another up and inspire one another out of self-centeredness and into what God desires, which is for us to live a life that is marked by love and good works. This tells us, actually, if you take note of this, that unless we have someone else in our lives who will stir us up out of self-centeredness, then we'll naturally sink back into that. And we won't live a life of love and good works. The love and good works just won't happen on their own. It's got to be provoked in us by others. We have to be incited and spurred on to action. But interestingly, the author isn't just commanding us To simply wait for someone else to stir us up. This is a command for us to actively seek to encourage others. To provoke one another and challenge one another to do good. These are the things that happen in authentic Christian community. This is what life in the new family of God, this new method of living that we've been brought into, looks like. Our faith isn't a private matter. Is it personal? Yes. Is it private? No. It's not a journey that we walk alone. It's one where we depend on one another, in even some of the most personal spiritual matters. I mean, look look with me at how many relationships are affected in just this one verse, verse twenty four. The author of Hebrews is telling those who are reading the letter, who it's addressed to, to stir up the faith of others so that then they can go out and affect the fourth group of people by doing love and good deeds for them. Four different groups right there. And while there are a variety of different ways to stir up or to spark or to spur on one another to love and good works, I would suggest to you that the very best way is with the truths of the gospel itself. You see, the reason why we all tend to sink into selfishness is because because the world, the flesh, and the devil all drag us back down to earth. Causes us to forget the critical gospel truths which motivate us into living for Jesus instead of ourselves. Our own hearts deceive us all too often. We forget what being a Christian is even really about and we're not even aware of it. It's why we absolutely rely on one another. Let me give you an example Perhaps you see a a friend in the church who has just succumbed to a sinful temptation. They've just fallen into sin. And they're really beating themselves up about it and really discouraged. And they've convinced themselves that God is no longer going to use them to advance His kingdom. You know what they need? You know what that individual needs? They need you to pour some truths of the gospel into their life and stir them up. That's what they need. If they're really a believer, they're forgiven. They've been washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. So tell them that. Shake them up. Stir them up in the most beneficial way possible. You can say something like this to them. You can say, hey, I know that you think that God is angry with you right now because of what you've done. I know you think that God's just pushed you aside and he's done with you now and he's not going to use you. I know you feel that way. But let me tell you something. If you're repenting and trusting in Jesus, He has forgiven you. He's washed you clean. Jesus paid it all. And you can walk away from this conversation having full assurance of faith that God loves you, He's not angry with you, and you have not lost your usefulness in His sight. And then you know what? If you can pair a Bible verse with that, that's even better. You can share with them, you know what? Man, it says in Romans that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, church family, can you, can you just feel that truth wash over you if you were that individual who was discouraged? Doesn't that, I mean, if you're feeling weighed down by sin, doesn't that can't you just feel yourself able to stand up a little straighter after hearing those truths for the gospel? Isn't that wonderful? I mean, if you were discouraged before, all right, let's get to work now, because that's gone. Because when the gospel truths well up in our hearts, you're driven to take your eyes off of yourself and to love others. Or how about this? What if you make plans to go out and rake the yard of a widow in our church? Why not take the initiative to challenge a few, other, a few other guys in the church to go out and do the same? Why don't you say to them, hey, you know what, guys? We have been freely given the grace of God. So you know what? Let's freely give. Let's go rake the yard of this dear widow in our church. Your zeal can inspire others. Your zeal can provoke others to love and good works. It's contagious. I don't know if you can tell, but all this only takes place in the context of real community. It happens within relationships. And in order for any meaningful relationship to take form, you must spend time together. The author goes on to tell us about that. Look at the beginning of verse 25 with me. It says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. The audience to which this letter was originally written was, of course, Jewish. It's the book of Hebrews. Apparently, some of them were struggling to make a full commitment to Christ. They were kind of one foot in and one foot out. And some of them had made a habit of not taking part in the Christian church gatherings that were regularly taking place. This could have been because they feared the persecution that they would have faced for being associated with followers of Jesus. Or it could have simply been because some of them convinced themselves that they didn't need other people. They might have been asking themselves this question Why does this Christianity thing have to involve other people? Why do I have to be involved and associated with a group? I mean, after all, I've got God, I've got my Bible, I've got the Holy Spirit. Isn't that all I need? Isn't that enough? I mean, can't I worship God just the same up in a deer stand or out on a golf course or at home or on my front porch? And honestly, I can find sermons on YouTube that are just as good, if not better, than what I've heard in churches. Well, do you want to know why it's important to be a part of a church? God, in His infinite wisdom, has brilliantly designed the Christian life to function in such a way that cannot be lived as he intends without gathering together with other believers. You cannot spur yourself on to love and good works. This will only come about as a product of authentic Christian fellowship. This is an essential tool that God uses for our sanctification. It's a built-in, designed dependence on others that prevents us from becoming conceited, and thinking that we can walk this path alone or privately. The Bible says that being part of a group of a local church isn't optional. It's mandatory. Now, am I saying that it's impossible for someone to be a Christian without being a part of a church? No, I'm not saying that. The Bible clearly says that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be part of a church to be a believer. But can you live in obedience to God and not participate in a church? No, you cannot. Are you living in God's will for your life if you're not part of a church? If you don't regularly assemble with believers? No, you are not. Someone who chooses to stay home and watch televangelists or sermons on YouTube when they could be worshiping with a body of believers can't give or receive encouragement. They can't be stirred up through godly relationships. They can't be corrected or challenged or told when they're getting off track. It's a dangerous thing to isolate yourself. There is no other option put forth in the New Testament as God's method for your spiritual growth. This is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. If it's that important, aren't the gatherings of the church something that are worth shaping our entire lives around? If you're weighing a potential new career opportunity that's going to require you to work Sunday mornings, that should factor in. Your ability to regularly assemble with believers should factor into that decision. How about sports and activities that kids are involved in? If it's something that takes you and your family away from God's designed place for your growth, it's worth considering whether or not that sport or activity is actually worth it. Going a step further, this is more than just a command to just simply attend worship services. It's a command to be an active participant. There's a big difference between meeting together and meeting together. You know, when Hannah and I first moved down here to Georgetown, we saw our house that we were going to be moving into. We noticed that it had a nice, tall privacy, privacy fence in the backyard. And I liked that. I mean, everybody likes privacy. Our old place back in Kansas City just had a little chain link fence and everybody could see everything that everybody else was doing. Sometimes it's easy for us to be a part of a church, but to put up privacy fences around our lives. You know, we kind of tell ourselves, I mean, hey, you know, we can be friends with other people, but don't get too close. Don't get in my business, and I won't get in your business. And you know, maybe you've heard the expression before that good fences make good neighbors. But privacy fences in the Christian life... Prevent us from living in the type of community the way that God has prescribed. If we can take down some of those fences, we'll participate and experience an authentic Christian community in such a way that you won't, you won't be able to wait for Sunday mornings. Not only to be encouraged, but to encourage others. Look with me at the command to encourage one another in verse 25. says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. For some of you, encouragement may be a foreign concept. There are homes where seldom is heard an encouraging word. A cycle is created sometimes when people don't encourage others because insecure people Discouraged people don't tend to encourage and affirm others. A lot of folks simply don't know how to encourage others or how to receive encouragement. Have you ever had someone pay you a compliment and you felt the need to deny it? Why is that? Have you ever hesitated before saying something encouraging or kind to someone else for fear that you'd be seen as someone who's trying to flatter them? What if I could tell you that there is a way to affirm and encourage others so that you don't have to feel that way? Think of the way the Apostle Paul encouraged and affirmed the churches that he wrote letters to. He said things like this. He said, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers because of your faith. And I'm convinced that since God has begun a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. That's how Paul encouraged and affirmed others. Paul was simply giving glory to the Lord for the things that he saw God doing in the lives of others as a result of what God was causing to take place and not them themselves. A wonderful way to affirm and encourage those around you is to simply affirm what God is doing through them. If nothing else, they're a person made in the image of God and the Lord deserves credit for that. And when someone else gives you a compliment or affirms you, you can just pass that compliment right on to the Lord. And you just say, well, hey, thank you for saying that. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Thank you for taking note of what God's been, been doing. I mean, isn't that so much more encouraging to hear than something like, hey, you got a nice hairdo or that's a cool shirt you're wearing today? I mean, that sort of encouragement's important, but this is distinctively Christian encouragement. This is a type of encouragement that makes you want to go out and do the same for somebody else. You know, this isn't difficult, but it does take intentionality. View this as a spiritual discipline to encourage others. View it as an act of obedience to the Lord. After all, God isn't given the glory that he deserves when we ignore or deny the work that he's been doing in the lives of our fellow believers. One of the cool things is, is there's more than one way to encourage and affirm those around you. I mean, everybody's different. Some people feel, might feel more encouraged by you giving them a gift that they can use to serve the Lord. If you know someone who's a prayer warrior, why don't you get them a little notebook that they can write down prayer requests in? Or if you see a, a friend who's been going out and mowing people's yards as a way to try to reach his neighbors with the gospel... Why don't you pay for that man's blades to be sharpened on his mower? Or pay for him a a fresh tank of gas? I mean, what a way to affirm what God has been doing in someone's life. What a way to encourage them and recognize what the Lord has done. Did you know there was a time when the Apostle Paul himself received encouragement? It was from a man named Joseph. He would actually been given a nickname by the apostles. He was a guy who was known for his active obedience in encouraging others. He had made a habit of doing that. And the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And in the book of Acts, shortly after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he went to meet with the other disciples in Jerusalem. But we're told that The apostles refused to meet with Paul because the Scripture tells us that they were afraid of him and they didn't actually believe that he was really a disciple. I mean, after all, Paul had done evil things. He had given them legitimate reasons to question whether or not he was a believer. But could you imagine the way that Paul must have felt after that? Imagine the kind of discouragement. I mean, that must have stung Paul. you know what? God had just the man to pump him up. God sent him Barnabas. We're told that Barnabas took Paul and brought him before the other apostles. And he explained to them how Saul of Tarsus had seen the Lord on the road and how the Lord had talked to him. And that in Damascus, he had been boldly preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I mean, you can almost imagine Barnabas walking in there with Paul with his arm around him, looking at the other apostles saying, you know what, fellas? No need to be afraid. The Lord has worked in this man's life. You can actually even imagine Barnabas looking right at Paul as he's saying this. God has saved this man. He's washed him clean in the blood of Jesus. And you know what? He boldly preaches in the name of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine the way that pumped Paul up We all need that. We all need that sort of encouragement. You know, I myself have seen and received encouragement in some interesting ways. Several years ago, some friends and I decided to go out to Colorado and attempt to hike the famous Pikes Peak. And maybe we have some daredevils in here who have also attempted that, so maybe you can relate. Extremely high mountain out there, and we were going to hike what's called the Bar Trail, we knew that this trail was 13 miles long. So what we did is we made the plan that all we wanted to do was just hike the 13 miles up it. And then there's a train that actually goes up to the top of the mountain. We were going to ride that train back down. So We bought tickets for the train, headed out the next morning, started our hike at 2.30 a.m. And as we trekked about 12 miles, it took us almost 11 hours to do so. You can imagine the weight of our packs on our back. I mean, You can imagine, we were pretty whooped. But after 11 hours of hiking, we could finally see the summit. We were close to the top. But you know what stood between us and the summit? An extra mile of hiking, knee-deep in snow. And you know what? To make matters worse, the very last train for the day was going to be leaving in 30 minutes. You can imagine the panic. You can imagine the serious, heartfelt prayers that were said. Lord, please get us off of this mountain. We were so exhausted, but we had so little time. So as we started scrambling up that mountain, a steep incline, fearing for our very lives, we noticed about 30 yards behind us that one of our guys was really struggling. He had stopped. He felt like he couldn't go any farther. But you know what, you think we can just leave him behind? Forget about it. We're only as fast as our slowest man. If, we're not get- if he's not getting off that mountain, we're not getting off that mountain. So you know what, we went back, we got him. We put our arms under him to support him. We took turns carrying his pack On our backs, you better believe there were a lot of words of encouragement shared. Trying to pump each other up and drive each other on. And as we scrambled up to that summit, we staggered up to the top with five minutes to spare. Church family, life goes by pretty fast. We don't have very long left on this earth. The return of Jesus Christ is imminent. We're not far from the summit. That's what it means when it says that to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. That day is approaching. Do we know when the return of Christ will be? No, we don't. But you know what we do know? Inside of about 100 years, either he's coming here or we're going there. So what matters most? Are we going to live for the kingdom of God or are we going to live selfish lives? Are we going to maintain privacy in the Christian life or are we going to step out of our comfort zone and invest in others for their spiritual good? Are we going to pour out our lives for our church body? Those are the things that matter.